No, they're not absolutely correct, and I don't care. I, I have to stress that in my view, the ancient Egyptian priesthood was not staffed by ale-retentive bureaucrats. I, I'm sure that, that there are academics who can find a, a dozen uh, reasons why uh, the resemblance of the temples of Angkor to the pattern of the constellation of Draco is accidental and a coincidence and can be explained in all sorts of other ways. I'm not required to be encyclopedic. In Heaven's Mirror, there is no representation whatsoever of recent carbon dates for Tiwanaku. I simply didn't discuss it in there. And I don't think that my arguments are ever going to be successfully destroyed by nitpicking. Welcome to another episode of Wetwired. This is Premium Episode 12, The Man from Atlantis. In this episode, we're joined by archaeologist Steph Holmhofer for a conversation about Graham Hancock's recent Netflix series, Ancient Apocalypse. Deep in humanity's forgotten past, before the end of the last Ice Age, Stone Age humans shared the planet with a much more advanced star-worshipping civilization. Through their knowledge of the constellations, this unnamed and forgotten society scientists were able to accurately predict that a planet-wide catastrophic flood was about to unfold that would all but wipe out humanity. By their ascendant technology and possibly some luck, a few members of this advanced society survived. Those remnants took it upon themselves to share their knowledge with the more primitive humans who remained. They began a planet-wide campaign, setting sail for the most far-flung corners of the Earth, and to help set the foundations for the rebirth of humanity. At least this is the story that Graham Hancock has been telling the millions of viewers who've watched his Netflix docuseries, Ancient Apocalypse. And to talk about all this with us, we're joined this week by Steph Halmhofer. She's a bioarchaeologist currently at the University of Alberta. Welcome, Steph. It's good to have you here. Welcome on. Hello. Thank you for having me here. And so is, is, um, is there anything that you'd like to add, to add to your background that you'd like people to know before we, before we start chatting? Um, I'm, I've been an archaeologist for a long time, a lot longer than uh, a lot of people I think realize, but I've been an archaeologist in Canada for a long time. I've worked in Europe. Um, I don't do bioarch so often anymore. Oh, okay. See, my stuff is dated. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, I mean, it still periodically comes up and, uh, you know, at, at request of, of nations, um, communities that I work with, sometimes I do it for them, but for the most part, I don't do it, but it, it, sometimes it comes up through pseudoarch when people are talking, claiming skeletal uh, evidence for aliens or, you know, stuff like that. Um, so it's still a useful skill to have. Um, and yeah, I've, I've been a PhD student for a few years now at the University of Alberta, uh, studying what I call the archaeology of highly cursed content. So you're, you're, you're covering a lot of uh, the convergence of New Age beliefs and and pseudo-archaeology and conspiracy theories sort of in this, I guess it's been called conspirituality context. And, you know, I've heard that you, that word used a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Conspirituality, it, it refers to just a blend, like ideologies or beliefs based on a blend of conspiracy theories and, and New Age spirituality. Um, and it's 
it's a term that came about in 2011, but it's it's been around for a while. It's just something that people are recently beginning to recognize. Um, and my my research focus is on mostly far right conspirituality um, mm-hmm. in a historic sense, also more of a contemporary sense. But individually, New Age spirituality and conspiracy theories are an area where pseudo-archaeology pops up a lot. So it, it makes sense that they're going to both or when you blend them together into conspirituality, I should say, it, it makes sense you're going to find pseudoarch there as well. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, we we've we've talked a lot about far right move the far right movements or aspects of the far right movement, and specifically focusing on Christian Christian nationalism, covering like uh, people like David Barton and the Wall Builders uh, efforts that he's been making to kind of rewrite American history, and just really to suit the narrative that they have of how they wish it was. The, uh, rather than how it actually turned out to be, which is obviously it's an ongoing process. I mean, this is a, mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, it's kind of a conversation we have with the past where we learn more and then we are, our ideas change and then we learn more and then again, the ideas change. Yeah, exactly. Right. We only sort of know so much based on what we have at hand at that moment. And like you say, as, as more information comes to light and we learn more, our, our ideas and our theories and about the past change. It's always changing. Um, there's always, it's never static. It's, it's very dynamic. I, I want to let you know that I did prepare for our conversation by uh, reading uh, some of uh, Hancock's work and also mm-hmm. by, uh, by watching a lot of Joe Rogan. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, and also uh, uh, a very special collector's issue of Atlantis Rising. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, fun. <laughs> Which is a fantastic magazine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I have definitely gone through Atlantis Rising several times. And yeah, they have I, their own uh, graphic novel now, too, hey? Really? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very long. And uh, I'm not entirely sure what it's about because it's very hard to follow. The the graphic novel angle, I think, is, is a lot of uh, people trying to play catch up and wondering what the kids are doing these days and how to reach this, uh, this new, this demographic that by the time they get around to actually producing a product is already aged out, you know, largely of what they're looking at anyway. But we, we saw that when we were talking about Claude Rael and the Raelians, <laughs> because oh, they, uh, yeah, they produced a, uh, a graphic novel of, you know, Rael's exploits with the Elohim and yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, basically it was just a, it was just a scene for scene retelling of the events that he describes in his first it's, book. It's pretty good as a fiction. Yeah. Yeah. That's what a lot of these things are. A lot of his stuff is pretty good as a fiction, as long as he's not writing it. Jules is the more generous, uh, co-host in this <laughs> podcast. I, I was just curious about the, uh, about how you, you initially became interested in these topics, because like you mm-hmm. said, you. You previously were were working uh, much more heavily in bioarchaeology, and from what it sounds like, you've you've changed your focus and and are really oriented toward this direction now. And I wonder what brought that about. Yeah, I, my master's degree was actually looking at glass beads, which is not mm-hmm. at all related <laughs> to this stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, just quite a swing. When I, I often think back on this, and I'm like, what was that moment? You know, it was, I guess it was kind of when I started to join. Social media, actually, when I got really involved in Twitter and back in the the before times of Twitter, I sort of started to meet this broader community of archaeologists and you learn about all the different things that archaeologists are focused on and and learning about and, and researching. And 
it met a small, a very small group of archaeologists who were talking about something called pseudo-archaeology. And learning from them, it suddenly kind of this light clicked on, thinking back to a lot of Discovery Channel documentaries and History Channel shows and, and whatnot that I watched as a kid or watched as an adult. I mean, who hasn't really watched an episode of Ancient Aliens just to, you know, crack jokes at it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so learning from these these archaeologists about this actual concept and more about what it is, I started to become really interested because I thought, you know, a lot of these things when I was young, even then I recognized something was just off about them. There was just something, couldn't quite put my finger on what it is. And now it's like, oh, okay, you know, they're pulling things out of context. They're changing these narratives a little bit. Um, so that, that I think, was the moment when I, I met some other archaeologists, joined this community, and got really interested in, in, in pseudoarch in general. Um, and then just over time began to realize its placement in the far right was sort of larger than what a lot of folks were realizing or, or at least talking about. Um, and it sort of seemed like this, this blank spot um, and an area that hadn't quite been explored enough. And that at the same time, I, I became very interested in this guy, Brother 12, who had a, a religious organization here in British Columbia in the 1920s. He was an Atlantis guy, a theosophy guy, far right conspiracy theory guy. And so that happened kind of at the same time I was realizing there's this blank area. Um, and so it's just sort of slowly wound my way down that path. And once you go down the rabbit hole, <laughs> there's no coming back. <laughs> it's Nope. It's a very dark rabbit hole to fall down and it's very hard to come back out of. There's almost no end to it. They, they just, it just it keeps you realize that these the you start pulling on these threads and you and and then start realizing how just how enmeshed everything is in these things and even sometimes even in just a really small way but it's still there. My own interest in both archaeology and and in pseudo archaeology goes all the way back to me being me in high school and because I was in a used bookstore and I. I don't know if you'd call it the, you know, had the good fortune or the misfortune to be really attracted to Chariots of the Gods. (laughs) (laughs) And I read that book, I think, when I was 16. And it had, it has had a lasting impact on me. (laughs) The, uh, not in the way Von Daniken wanted it to probably, but the, but it definitely, I mean, at first it was just this wild story and everything so fantastic. And oh, wow, this is incredible. I never learned this anywhere else. And you know, and then it doesn't take very long if you actually want to try to understand the background of the of the source material material he's using to find out that it's all nonsense. But it, it doesn't make it not an exciting story. I mean, Ridley Scott released Prometheus a few years ago. That's essentially the same idea. He put ancient aliens right there in the, you know in the movie theaters <laughs> and had everybody created on the planet by this other race of people. And it just mm-hmm. sort of goes on and goes on. I mean, lots of science fiction that you wouldn't necessarily associate with it has covered this. You know, Star Trek The Next mm-hmm. Generation had a, had a story arc that involved the, a species of aliens that were responsible for seeding the, the entire galaxy with humanoid, humanoid life forms. You know, and then there's a secret in the genetic code that if you get everybody together, then you can learn what that is. I, this, this is all the same kind of stuff. I was kind of chuckling when I was reading that introductory uh, part because a lot of that was like, I almost included this as part of it, but I absolutely robbed and rewrote pretty much the original um, 
opening monologue from the the 1978 Battlestar Galactica series. That's exactly what it was about. It was the same thing. And you know, and that and the author of uh of that of the that material was he was in, he's uh Mormon and he was inspired by Mormon texts mm-hmm. which also has aliens that you know, we don't hear about that part they too do. terribly often, but yeah, that's the whole thing is extraterrestrial. Yeah, Mormon texts are uh very interesting and they're they're very they are very based in archaeology as well and this idea of, of material culture. I mean, Joseph Smith finding these gold plates, these material pieces of material culture that tells the the Mormon story, essentially. Um, and there's some interesting branches of Mormonism as well. You can find almost anything in Mormonism, ancient aliens, you can find hyperdiffusionist stuff, um, a little bit of everything in there. I'm sure that you have seen some of Graham Hancock's most recent series. I'm wondering what what your uh, what your current thoughts on that series happen to be. You know, it was it was both surprising and not surprising. So I wasn't particularly surprised by the content um, or, or the the storyline, his theory, because I'm I'm familiar with it. Um, it's stuff he's been talking about for years. Um, so I, I sort of knew what he was going to be, roughly what he was going to be talking about. Uh, but what did surprise me was the level of aggression and just like putting all that that stigmatized knowledge concept or stigmatized knowledge claims the conspiracism at the very front and that's you know one of the things i've i've said a few times is that it it wasn't a series about archaeology archaeology came second what came first was the idea of of archaeologists suppressing trying to silence or censor um, Hancock, which is ironic for him to be saying he's being censored on a Netflix show or on a podcast as large as the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, that never quite makes it across to the audience. But um, that's the part that I found really surprising is just how aggressive and, and conspiracist the series ended up being. I didn't expect it that hard. I knew it would be there, but I didn't expect as much as what there was. Do you see a connection between the uh, the between? I mean, that really that that came across to me as well in the show and in, in the uh, in his recent series that the he really he just started off from the beginning that he was being silenced and nobody was paying attention to his ideas and yeah, everybody's been trying to shut him down and I I think he he made some remark in one of the episodes about being called a pseudo archaeologist and he he said that that was like calling a dolphin a pseudo fish. <laughs> yeah, the, but to me, that's that's that has a that has a very similar sort of feel to concerns about being deplatformed that you hear in the far right, and you know, and, and it's all back around again now. Obviously, with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and everybody demanding that they are requ- making demands that rec- accounts get reinstated, and and now, of course, you have these zombies coming back that have been gone for quite some time, and. What do you think about that that comparison? Is that something that is that something that resonates with you too? Yeah, definitely. I you know, I I don't think I will I will say I don't think Hancock writes for the far right. He, that's not his intended audience, but that is an audience that really his work really resonates with them. Um his his books are are cited quite frequently in in certain far right spaces, certain far right books and articles. Um and that is something else that I haven't seen Hancock or his supporters or other pseudo-archaeological authors address. 
they're very quick to say, I'm not racist. You guys are are being ridiculous for calling this racism. You say everything is racism, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is that his work has found a home in these spaces and it's not being addressed. It's not being condemned. Um, Instead, the folks who are pointing it out are the problem. So that's something that I I always notice. I was just reading through some stuff this morning um, where, again, his his books are are being praised again in these very far right spaces. Um, And it just, you know, it's that idea of of stigmatization that draws all of these folks together. Um, Michael Barkin talks about this concept of stigmatized knowledge claims where proof, evidence, physical evidence is not necessary because the stigmatization is the evidence. The idea of it must be true because look at how hard these archaeologists are trying to suppress it or reject it or ignore it or forget about it kind of thing. And I think that's why this show also became so popular so or, or drew such a large audience so quickly is because stigmatization brings together people mm-hmm. who aren't necessarily only interested in historical conspiracies anybody who's primed to view stigmatization as a signifier of truth will look at this show and be like oh hey you know some people are trying to hide this truth there must be something to it and it's the same for the the far right folks who also believe you know they're being stigmatized in one way or another so they must be onto something true they're gonna see what's going on with his show and and just continue to be drawn over to it and especially because he's so vague in the show about who this actual civilization was. He doesn't give it any detailed description at all. So it kind of creates, it, it molds it into this blank slate or, or puts it on this blank slate that can now be used by anybody who's kind of just looking to create a mythical past with some form of archaeology. I mean, here's a whole series about it that they can use. I was listening to a podcast not too long ago and uh Dr. Ken Hoops was on there. Is that his name? Do I have his name right? John Hoops. John Hoops. That's right. I'm, I'm getting him mixed up with uh, with Ken Fetter. Um, Ken but Fetter. The, but he was on there and he was asked a, a, a similar question coming from this vein of, of, of stigmatized knowledge. And the host was uh, saying that, you know, he'd, be, he'd had this, uh, this guest on and he had this theory and he'd written these, this book and all these things. And the, and it was kind of a wild theory, you know, <laughs> and, and he said that his the his guest's biggest complaint was that I'm intentionally leaving this guy's name out of this, but th- this guy's biggest yeah, yeah. complaint was that nobody in academia was taking him seriously, and they wouldn't talk to him. So uh, John Hoops was saying that uh, that well, this isn't a hypothetical because I've spoken with him, <laughs> and like, and it was it was just a perfect sort of you know co- it's like a conflict between the perception mm-hmm. of of knowledge being stigmatized and people refusing to engage with you. And then here we have somebody who is, I mean, by all definitions, an established academician and, you know, mainstream archaeologist. And he's saying, yeah, I I have had contact with him and this is what I told him. So I could tell this to anybody else too. And, but this stigma, this, uh, this idea of the stigmatized knowledge and then that, and then seeing any sort of resistance or pushback as evidence that, you know, you're somehow on the right track this is again, you know, resonance and and other areas of not necessarily far right, but in mm-hmm. in QAnon circles, the the mm-hmm. the expression is that you're over the target. That's how you know you're mm-hmm. over the target because they're shooting back at you. 
Yeah. That's taken as evidence that you're you're onto something because you're getting you're getting pushback. Yeah. If you are saying something that's getting pushback uh, or people aren't taking you seriously, then by the very fact that people aren't taking you seriously, then you must be on the right track. Exactly. It's just this constant circle around and around and around. And that's, you know, that's why we say facts don't matter. These aren't spaces where facts matter because any fact can be turned to support really any position that's being put forward. Um, It's, it's, really comes down to an, an area of feelings and emotions. A lot of conspiracism is, is based on feeling and emotion anyway. Um, and yeah, it's, it's the same thing in all of this. It's just this constant, you must be onto something because look at how they're reacting. This idea of any sort of criticism actually becoming stigmatization. And it, that's not the case. We're not criticizing because we're trying to suppress. That's part of the process. That's part of weighing what has been presented and is it convincing is it conclusive enough it's not conclusive enough that's what we're trying to say that's not stigmatizing you that is just part of the process but it becomes this seen as this proof of stigmatization you've been listening to a sample of a wet wired premium episode to listen to this entire episode and to hear our entire back catalog you can subscribe on patreon for just five dollars a month We also have a limited number of $3 a month True Believer memberships, but when those run out, they are gone. Thank you for helping us keep WetWired editorially independent and ad-free.